I have uh, picked up and begun reading a book by Sissy Goff. Some of you may know it. It's called Raising Worry-Free Girls. Does anybody know that book? It's a good one. I've just, as I said, I'm not done with it, but I've got a couple girls in my house. So we've been reading and reflecting on that. And um, something struck me as I was reading this week, and my wife is reading it too, and she was sharing something with me. Uh, I was thinking about you know, worry becoming this epidemic of anxiety and the depth of it in our society and how much of it is. And she commented, she sees a, the, the percentages of young men and young women dealing with anxiety and worry that leads to anxiety is significantly higher than it was in my generation, uh, than the generations before mine. And there's a lot of thoughts as to why, what's causing that, you know, what's going on. But one of the realities she commented on was technology, technology use. And she said, you know, seeing young men uh, in her office, one of the things that she's noted is that so many of them are finding so much of their um, enjoyment in technology, video games in particular, that they are kind of sequestered to their bedroom and it's really sapping their strength and their ability to succeed in the real world. And that's leading to all kinds of anxiety and worry because the reality is everyone knows they need to succeed in the real world. And if I don't feel the confidence I can when I walk into my bedroom because I've, I've so inundated myself with the use of technology, that it's creating this real rise in worry among young men. It's just for young women, it's a little different. The technology use often on social media is creating such social pressure for them, such pressure to not just compare themselves, as that's what we'd expect, right? I compare myself to what I see uh, somebody else's life looks like on the screen. But actually, she says, it's through the pressure to keep up relationships through all these different social media channels. So she talks about something called snap streaks, which I'd never heard of before. How many of you know what a snap streak is? Man, you guys are way smarter than I was. But now I'm caught up to you. So I didn't know what a snap streak was. She said a snap streak is uh, on Snapchat. It's keeping a daily conversation going back and forth with someone. And she said she had a young lady in her office that had 30 of these snap streaks going with someone. And I you know, was aiming to get to something like 50 or 100 days in a row of this. And she said, well, how long does that take you to manage that? She says, oh, hour to two hours every day to manage. She said, well, how does that feel? Is, that, is it like producing more enjoyment in those relationships? She said, no, not at all. It doesn't do anything to help those relationships. But if I said, why, why do you find yourself doing it? And she said, because if I don't do it, I don't think they'll like me anymore or they'll think I don't like them anymore. It's a really honest and innocent pressure, right? A want to maintain relationships, but the pressure uh, that that technology is creating on that young lady. Now listen, I, I don't say that some of you have snap streaks going right now. I don't say that to belittle that uh, or to lessen or cheapen that in any way. What I do say the recognition that Sissy Goff is making is that Technology, among other things, and her book isn't limited to technology. She comments on all kinds of things that are causing a rise in worry and a rise in anxiety. Technology is one of them, and we have to be way wiser in the way we manage technology. Moms and dads, we have to be way wiser. Way wiser. I'll say that. Now, listen, you, what does that have to do with Galatians 6, 1 to 5? What does it have to do with our text today? Well, the subject of our text is burden-bearing. And what that got me thinking as I was reading this book, it got me thinking, I'm not sure that the American church, I don't mean our specific church, although we are part of the American church, I'm not sure the American church is equipped or prepared to deal with the epidemic that worry and anxiety is in our society, in particular among our younger generation. And the reason is probably multifold, but I think one of the reasons we may not be very well prepared for it is because we have created in the American church an ability to just kind of sit on the periphery of relationships, 
and sit on the periphery of engagement in life in the body. And we prioritize other things in our society. We prioritize our kids' sports and band and theater and different activities. We prioritize our own social lives or travel or whatever it may be over life together in the body. I mean, I, so if that sounds harsh, I just, just, do a, just do a quick assessment of your own kind of life and ask, how do I prioritize life connected to other believers? And I would argue that often the American church is marked by a shallowness of relationship with one another. Now, we're aiming for something very different here. But I would say, in general, the American church is often marked by a shallowness of relationship. And if we're marked by a shallowness of relationship, then we lack the very thing we need to battle the, the war against worry and anxiety, which is a depth of relationship, a depth of being known and loved and cared for. And that's exactly what our text speaks to today because it's a very simple command we're gonna find in Galatians 6, one through five. A very simple command. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. And then what Paul is going to do is he's gonna give us both the reason that we're supposed to do that. So he's gonna give us a command, then a reason why. Why should we bear one another's burdens? And then he's gonna give us uh, how, something we need to do it. Just one thing in particular, but it's a deeply important thing. And then he's gonna loop back around and he's going to give a specific example of bearing one another's burdens. That's a pretty big one and one that we need to practice as a church family. So command, reason for the command, what we need to obey the command, and then an example. All right, fair enough. Everybody tracking? All right, awesome. Let's read Galatians 6, 1 to 5, and let's see what the Lord's word has for us today. So Galatians 6, 1 to 5 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load, for each will have to bear his own load. Now that last verse, if you're following along, you might think, that seems like a contradiction. Bear one another's burdens, and yet each will have to bear their own load. And we're gonna come to that. We're gonna explain that and help us understand it. But let's begin with that very basic command. Did we all see it there in verse two? Yes? Bear one another's burdens. Now I'm skipping past verse one. We're gonna start in verse two, because verse one, where he starts, is the example of burden bearing. Restore someone who's in sin. That's a specific type of burden bearing, but the broader category, the overarching category of the command today is to learn to bear one another's burden. So let's examine that first, and let's talk about the reason why. That's the first thing we need to do is why are we supposed to bear one another's burdens? And the answer to that is found in the end of verse two in that phrase, and fulfill, and so fulfill the law of Christ. All right, so what is burden bearing? When Paul gives us this command, he says, I want you to, to bear one of those burdens, he's using an intentionally broad command. He's not just saying, hey, if you got a pickup truck and somebody needs to move, make sure you show up, right? Practical acts of service, that's burden bearing. Or, you know, emotional connection with someone who's grieving or hurting, that's, that's burden bearing. He's giving this very broad command because what he wants you to see is that there are gonna be a variety and numerous ways that God is going to give you the opportunity to bear someone else's burdens. And they all fit under the category. You are to bear burdens 
which is a weight that someone experiences that is too great for them. And it might be emotional, might be physical, might be circumstantial in life, some life circumstance, whatever it may be. Maybe health, maybe a burden that of just um, a broken relationship, right? And so he's saying, when you encounter a brother or a sister, someone who is in Christ with you, and they are bearing a burden, I want you to bear it with them. Figure out how you are to bear that burden with him. What opportunity is God bringing to you to do that? So it's intentionally broad. That's the first thing that I need you to see. It's not limited to, oh, I've borne their burdens because I helped with this task, right? You have to ask, what is the burden-bearing opportunity so that I might then engage it well? And the reality is some of us are more comfortable bearing one type of a burden rather than the other, right? Some of us are like, I'm all about showing up to help you move, but I'm not sure I want to sit and have that hour-long conversation about deeply emotional things. Some of us might be the opposite of that. But in each of those things, God is saying, what is your opportunity to bear someone else's burden? Now, the implication is that it's, like I said, it's broad, but let me just point out two other things. Number one is this command, bear one another's burdens, is given to a church, and it's going to take everyone that hears this command in order for it to be kept. And I would say the same thing for our church. It takes all of us to do it. What happens in a church where a few people say, I will bear the burdens of others and no one else does? Well, let me let you know a little secret. Everyone in this room has burdens that they're bearing. Yours may be lighter right now. Praise God. Yours might be heavier right now, but everyone has them. And if everyone doesn't take up the call to bear one another's burdens, the weight will be too great for the few who do. It takes everyone. Everyone in a church family must commit themselves, if we're gonna be healthy, to bear the burdens of those whom God gives opportunity. If you just say, well, the staff is there to bear the burdens of the congregation. There are not enough of us to bear all of your burdens with you. Well, you know, we've got counselors. They'll bear the burdens of people. They're great and they're wise and they're so helpful, but they can't bear the weight of everybody's burden. It takes every single one of us committing ourselves to it. And I recognize what that means for some of you is what I'm really inviting you to today is to come in off the periphery of our family, to come in off the edges and to say, I will, I will make my life in this place. I'll let myself know others and I'll let myself be known by others. And I know that that can be a scary invitation, but I'm just telling you, it's the pathway to freedom. That's what we've been talking about throughout Galatians, right? So what does a free life look like? What does it look like to live in the freedom from death and the law and sin, controlling our daily activities? You can't do it without each other. Now that leads to the next implication is not just that it takes all of us to bear one another's burdens, but actually it takes a willingness to let others bear your burdens, because some of us are more in that other camp where you're like, I'm happy to bear other people's burdens, but I don't want anyone to bear mine. And I like what John Stott, commenting on this text, John Stott, who's a, an old pastor, passed away years ago. He says this, and that's a longer quote, but I love it so much. So just stick with me and we'll put it up on the screen for you so you can see it there. But listen to what he says about that. He says, notice the assumption which lies behind this command, namely that we all have burdens that God does not mean us to carry and God does not mean us to carry them alone. Some people try to. They think it's a sign of fortitude not to bother other people with their burdens. Such fortitude is certainly brave, but it is more stoical than Christian. What he means there is stoicism is a, is a Greek philosophy. 
right? So think back to Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And he's saying, stoicism, this sort of stiff upper lip, like be self-sufficient, that's kind of taught in that. He said, that's not, it's not Christian to say I'm an island unto myself. That's stoicism. So he says, it's more stoical than Christian. Others remind us that we are told in Psalm 55, 22 to cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And that the Lord Jesus invited he- those who are heavy laden to come to him and promise to give them rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. They therefore argue that we have a divine burden bearer who is quite adequate and it is a sign of weakness to require any human help. Well, this too is a grievous mistake. True, Jesus Christ alone can bear the burden of our sin and guilt. He bore it in his own body when he died on the cross. But this is not so with our other burdens, our worries, temptations, doubts, and sorrows. Certainly, we can cast these burdens on the Lord as well. We, cast, we can cast all our care on him since he cares for us. But remember that one of the ways in which he bears these burdens of ours is through human friendship. You see what he's saying? He's saying this idea of I'm not gonna put my burdens on anyone else is not a Christian idea. I firmly agree with John Stott on this. That is far from the Christian vision for what life is supposed to be like. Bear one of those burdens implies also that you let others bear yours. It implies also that you let others bear yours. Human friendship, connectedness within the body is part of how Christ invites us to those who are heavy laden, to bring our burdens to him and lay them down. And the gift he gives is friendship with one another. And some of you have experienced that, haven't you? When that comes into your life, you recognize the richness of it and how necessary it is. So before we go further in with the why, we're still on the why, I just wanna ask for a moment of self-examination. Now, I don't know the answer to this, but I'll ask you to ask yourself, how are you doing with this? Do you run from the burdens of others when you see them, the opportunity to meet them, or do you find yourself running towards them? Are there certain types of burdens that make you less comfortable and others with which you're more comfortable? I just wanna ask you to let the Spirit examine you in that. Before we just go any further, it's the simple command. Bear one another's burdens. How you doing? When's the last time you bore a burden alongside someone? By the way, you can't take it for them, but you can help them shoulder it. You can make lighter weight of it for them. Now let's keep going on the why, okay? Now we, this phrase that we see, why must we bear each other's burdens? And he says, so that in so doing you fulfill the law of Christ. Now that's the answer to the why question. So we've said, what is burden bearing? Now we have to ask why do we do it? And if the answer is fulfill the law of Christ, every time Paul has used the, the idea of the law in Galatians up to this point, he's been referring to the Old Testament law, right? And he's been on this whole thing about talking about how we can't be righteous by the law and he's trying to kill legalism and put it to death. And so we're tempted to go back there when we hear this word law, but recognize that he didn't say the Old Testament law or the law of God. He said the law of who? the law of Christ. And so what we see that he's referring to is not the Old Testament law, but he's referring to what Christ is and what he represents in his very personhood. He's saying everything Jesus is and taught is the law of Christ. 
Everything he is and everything he taught is the law of Christ. And it's most and best summed up in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, when he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You belong to me. You're marked by me. By this, all people will know it. How? That you have love for one another. That's the best summation of the teaching of Christ and the person of Christ in one phrase, in one sentence, when he says, I'm gonna tell you that you are to love one another in a new kind of a way, in a way that wasn't possible before the Spirit indwelled you and filled you, and now is totally radically different. And so when Paul says, I want you to bear one another's burdens so that you will fulfill the law of Christ, here's what he's saying. The burden bearing is an expression of love. Love one another. You want to show love for one another? Bear one another's burdens. And why do we love one another by bearing burdens? So that the world would see Jesus. So simple. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can I let you on a little secret? You will not do much burden bearing for long if you do it because you think the person is worthy of you bearing their burdens. They will prove very quickly they are not. If you bear their burdens because you think I'm pretty necessary and important and I need to show that and so I'm gonna take on the burdens of others to show how great I am, you won't do that very long either because you're gonna come up short so many times you're going to get frustrated and you're gonna stop doing it. The only way to keep bearing burdens over and over and over again is to do it not for yourself and not for the other person but for Jesus. It's to do it because he's worthy not because they're worthy. It's to do it because he invites you to and commands you to, not because they need you to. You do it because you treasure him and you are displaying the gospel. I'll tell you in a minute, all there's three really beautiful ways that burden bearing displays the gospel. But it makes Jesus known to the world and that's our chief desire. It's our chief end. It's the thing we want more than anything and it's the only sustainable motive for anything we do in life. Everything else, <coughs> pardon me, will, will peter out. But if our chief ambition is to glorify God through Jesus Christ with our very lives, then we do it because he invites us to do it and it exalts the name of Jesus. That's why we bear burdens as an expression of love. Amanda and I talk all the time to married couples. One of the things we say regularly to young married couples is we will look at the kind of roles that we play as husband and wife and the commands of scripture. And Ephesians 5 is really clear that I am to be the head of my house and the head of my wife the way Christ is the head of the church. I'm to display what his love for his church is like. And so I'm told very dauntingly, husband, love your wife as Christ loves the church. That'll make you shake in your boots if you understand what that means. And then she is commanded, and wives, submit to your husbands and respect your husband as the church submits and respects to Christ. How do we do that? How do we fulfill that? Well, here's what we found out. If we do it only on the days the other person is worthy of us doing it for them, it's not gonna happen very long. If I only love my wife the way Christ loved this church, when I feel like she's doing her part of the equation, then I'm not gonna do it very long. But if I do it because he commands me to do it and he is worthy of me doing it, whether she does her part or not, that is sustainable. And guess what? I don't have an out clause. I don't get an excuse to say, well, I'll start doing my part when she starts doing her part. That's how marriages start cycling down. 
Somebody has to break that cycle. Husbands, it's your job. Break the cycle. Serve your wives. Love her the way Christ loves the church. Sacrifice what you desire, what you want, so she has what she needs and what she desires. Make her more satisfied in Jesus because of the way you love her. Lead your families. Love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Not because he's a great leader, not because he's worthy of you doing it, but because Jesus commands you and he is worthy. Do you see why that's the only sustainable motive? It's the only one. All right, this wasn't about, supposed to be about marriage. Let's keep going. Just think about burden bearing for a moment, and then we're gonna move to our next two things. If we bear one another's burdens, think about how that displays the gospel. The gospel says everyone is lost in sin, and burden bearing says everyone has a burden, right? Everybody, everybody has a burden that needs to be borne. The second thing it reflects about the gospel is when I bear your burdens, I'm saying, and admitting none of us can carry that weight alone. And that's exactly what the gospel says. I can't carry the weight of my sin alone. Somebody needs to carry it for me. I need someone to intervene. Not only that, but burden bearing is so sacrificial that it's a beautiful expression of the love of God displayed at the cross. That love is sacrifice in its very nature. That love is sacrificial. It lays down its life. It's what it does. The reason why is so important because it prevents a command like bear one of those burdens from becoming, a, it's this beautiful, life-giving, life-shaping, joy-giving command. And if we follow in the power of the Spirit through faith in love, it brings life. If we follow it as a command for the sake of a command, we slip right back into legalism and moralism, and as we do that, it now becomes a dead command. And it kills us because we seek our righteousness through it, which is exactly what Paul's been arguing against the whole time. So we must cling to the right reason for obeying this command, which is we do it to glorify him, not because it's a command for a command's sake. All right, let's go to what we need then to obey. So I'm gonna imagine for a moment you're convinced. We have to bear each other's burdens. How? What's gonna keep me from doing that? Well, Paul gives us an answer in verses three, four, and five, and it's an important, it's not the only thing we need to be able to do this, but it must be so important that it's the one thing he chooses to highlight. So look, in verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, what he's saying there is not, you think you're something and you're really nothing, all right? What he's saying is, the thing that could prevent you from bearing one another's burdens is if you think it's beneath you a lack of humility. If you think that someone's burdens are beneath your bearing them with them, that will prevent you from doing it. Can we all agree with that? If I look at the needs of my neighbor, the needs of my brother, and I go, "Ah, I'm I'm too important to get my hands dirty with that one, then I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna bear one of those burdens. And that's exactly what he's saying. Your lack of humility will keep you from bearing the burdens of others. And he's saying it's a mistake to think that way. It's a mistake to think that way. There is no one's needs that are beneath you, no type of person that's beneath you. There is no estimation of ourselves that we're supposed to give that says, well, you know, I'll let somebody who's a little less important 
bear that burden. When God brings you the opportunity, you step into the burden bearing. So that's what he suggests there. And then verse four and five, what he's giving us is a way to grow in humility. So verse four, he says this, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So he's saying, give an honest assessment of your own life, what you're doing, and then why? Why would that produce more humility? And verse five tells us, for each will have to bear his own load. Now what he's talking about there is standing before Jesus at the final judgment of our works. Now, I think, how is this not contradictory? You say, bear one of those burdens, and then in verse five, you say, each one have to bear his own load. And the key is in the difference between the word burden and the word load, okay? The word burden is the idea of a crushing weight too big for anybody to bear. The word load is the idea of a soldier's pack that he puts on to wear into battle. It's his equipment. It's what he needs to go and fight the fight. In other words, when he says each one will have to bear his own load, he's saying God has given you tools, gifts, skills, talents, treasures, time. He's given that to you. That's not a weight too great to, to bear. It's the weight he's given you of the tools to serve him. And you will be held accountable for how you use them. One day you and I will stand before Jesus and our eternal destiny will be determined not by what we do, but by whether we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And by that alone, this is a good place for an amen. All right, I gotta ask for it, it's fine. I don't mind. But there will also be a judgment of our works. 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse 10 through 15 talks about this. There will be a judgment of our works. How have I used the things God has placed in my hands? And when I know that I'm going to face that judgment, it does two things. It both, one, reminds me my eternal destiny is not based upon my performance. Praise God. And that humbles me. And then it also reminds me that when I stand there, I will be assessed for what I have done with what he's given me, my time, my talent, my treasure. And when I think about that, I think about two things immediately. I go, even when I use them well, I'm not really worthy of the reward you're going to give me. And that humbles me because he's going to give me a reward. And when I haven't used them well, right, I think, wow, I'm going to face the one who is perfect and be before him, and that humbles me. So he's saying, get your eyes up, not on this day, but on the day. That's what Paul's gonna call it, the day, the day of Jesus that we stand before him. And as you think about it, that must be part of every believer's regular prayer life, in prayer to regularly take ourselves in our minds and in our hearts into the throne room of God and to see the day that we will stand before Jesus and he'll return for us. We're encouraged to do it by John, by James, by Peter, by Paul again and again. John says one day he'll appear and we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. What's John doing? He's saying, think about that day. Set your sights on that day. Remember who you're going to be on that day, right? It's what Peter says in Colossians when he's talking about that we will no longer be what we were, we'll be completely what we then are made to be, right? So listen to what 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 says. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So Paul there is talking about that he preached the gospel, and that others came in and helped people grow in Christ. They were their teachers. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. That means visible. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you see the judgment that's coming? It's not to be feared. It's to be embraced with joy. Do you see that everything God has placed in your hands is an opportunity to serve him, and he's promised reward for it. He doesn't need to do that, but he's so generous and so gracious that he says, come to me expecting reward for spending your time well, spending your money well, using the gifts I've placed in your hands. So the question for all of us is, am I using them? So again, the command, bear one another's burdens. Why? Not for your own sake, not for the sake of the person whose burden you're bearing, but because Jesus is glorified and seen when we love one another the way he loved us. What are you gonna need to do that? You're gonna need humility. As long as you consider it beneath you, you won't do it. How will you grow in humility? And here we could, I could take you to 25 other texts, okay? But he gives us one thing to grow in humility here. And he says, grow in humility by remembering that you will stand before the Lord. You will receive reward or loss based upon how you use the things that he places in your hands. Though your eternal destiny is secure, not based upon your performance. Now, let's go to the third, the last category. Now we're gonna loop back to verse one. So in verse two, we had the command, we had the reason for the command. Then we had the what do we need to do, the command, humility. Now go back to verse one where he started with a specific example of, of this burden bearing. And let's look at it. And there's a couple things I wanna highlight for you. So verse one, brothers. And it's so important that he starts with that phrase, brothers. And we could say brothers or sisters. Because what he's doing is before he says, bear one another's burdens, he's saying, those of you who are in Christ, you are family. Now, I know it's very common for sports teams and all, and you know, theater groups and whatever else to talk about themselves as family. Oh, we're a family. That's a great, it's a fine thing, but it's a metaphor. That's all it is. And it's great that those relationships, you build them and you grow in them. Those can be really enriching, fantastic, but it's just a metaphor. When the scriptures call us brothers and sisters, it is not a metaphor. It is a spiritual reality. We're the only people for whom this is not metaphorical. It is absolutely true. In fact, I am your, now praise God, my sister, who I'm very close with, knows the Lord, so we are brothers and sisters. If she didn't, I would be more your sibling than hers because our relationship, our blood tie will end. But my tie to you, and thankfully my tie to her, will never end. Those who are in Christ have been called children of God. See what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called what? Servants, friends, slaves? No, children of God. And that is what we are. That's what John tells us. Now, if that's true, and he is our father and we are his children, what am I to you and what are you to me? They're brothers and sisters. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's not a metaphor. Before he says bear one another's burdens, he reminds them how they are related to one another. I'm much more likely to want to bear your burden if I'm reminded 
that you are my sibling, that I'm tied to you forever and you are tied to me forever. I want to love you. It's, it's the kind of the thing where like, you know, you have a brother, sister and they're kind of annoying a little bit and you're thinking like, uh, but then the second somebody else starts picking on them, they like, no, that's not okay. You don't get to pick on them, right? You stand up and you've all, if you have kids, you've seen this, right? Where your kids will pick on each other incessantly and then some other kid around the block says something and you're like, they're ready to sock them because you're like, how dare you? This is my family. Nobody else gets to say that, right? Same kind of idea here. He's just reminding them, brothers, brothers, sisters, all right? That's a lot to say about one word. Sorry, let's keep going. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then here's another humility piece. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the kind of burden bearing, he's saying it, part of bearing one of those burdens is helping each other come out of sin. And he's saying, by the way, you're gonna need to remember that like, you're not above the temptation that they have succumbed to. You're not gonna be very good at helping someone come out of sin if your attitude is, well, I would have never done that. Can't believe they were so stupid to fall into that. All right, let me come help you out. You need to remember the phrase there, but for the grace of God go I. There is no sin that you are above. Not a single one. There's no sin, no temptation, which you might not succumb to, given the right circumstances and situation and prayerlessness and you know, whatever might lead there. And so we begin there. Keep watch on myself, knowing that I could, I could go down that exact same road. Now, I want you to note something here. It says, I want you to restore them, and how? In a spirit of what? Gentleness. Now, Quay did an awesome job last week, did he not? helping us understand the fruit of the Spirit. And as we were thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, right, love, joy, peace, think about this, he could highlight, as he says, I want you to restore this brother, this sister who's walking in a way that they shouldn't, who's going astray. I want you to, I want you to help them course correct. I want you to restore them, and I want you to do it in a spirit of, and he could have said love, or peace, or in spirit of patience, because it's gonna take a lot of that. But what does he say? gentleness. Now, the other thing I want you to note is he says, if anyone is not, comes to you and confesses their sin and admits they're wrong, if anyone is what? Caught in their sin. See, some of us might think, well, if someone comes and confesses, then I'll meet them with gentleness. But you know what? If they're caught in their sin, they don't get gentleness. And he's exactly prescribing the opposite. He's saying they're caught, red-handed. This is not someone who came and said, hey, I did this, I was wrong, you didn't know about it, and I need to tell you about it, I need to confess it to you. No, this is the person who did not admit it and then was caught in it. And what does he prescribe for them? Gentleness. Now, I do believe implicit in the text is repentance. So having been caught, this person responds and says, I was wrong, I sinned. I don't know, you know, you can be firm and gentle at the same time, I don't know that this text is aiming at the person who says, I deny that I ever did anything wrong and I'm running away from that. That's a different scenario. But here's someone who's caught red-handed and he says gentleness, gentleness. Can you all just say gentleness for me? Okay, you said it, you're accountable now. <laughs> gentleness, 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 
gentleness. There is no place for harshness. Firmness, yes. Let me tell you, the mark of a healthy church, one of the marks of a healthy church is one, two things that are implicit in this passage. Number one, that they actually confront sin. That they actually deal with it. They don't ignore it. They don't sweep it under the rug. They don't act like it's not there. All the way down from you in relationship with one another to the church leadership and enacting church discipline when that is necessary. A healthy church confronts and deals with sin. But it always does so, here's the second thing, in order to restore. Never to condemn, never to be harsh, never to just step on, never to shame, never to push out, always to bring back. Now sadly, sometimes people respond in such a way that they run out. And I just wanna say to you, friends, you don't have to run. The safest place to be is in a church who will confront sin and then seek to restore. And I, I promise you, as long as I am, have the gift of being your pastor, I will strive with everything in me to make sure that we are a body that seeks to restore, to bring you back. Now listen, I don't have a prophetic word, but let me do a number, let me just play a numbers game here. Some of you are hiding stuff. Some of you right now are hiding things and you don't have to. You don't have to. It's crushing you. It is a burden too great to bear. You don't have to. You can be free. But that freedom comes with confession and repentance and then letting your brothers and sisters bear the burden with you to restore you to fellowship with the Father and to joy in him and not being mastered by this sin that just is guiding you around. There's freedom to be found, but it, it's never gonna be found in quiet isolation. It's never gonna be found in hiding. Ever, 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 ever. I know I'm saying that in a strong way, but it's true. I've never seen a believer overcome sin by hiding it and keeping it quiet, ever. But boy, I'll tell you, I've seen freedom come. Freedom through confession. It's scary. Amanda and I were talking last night. We were sharing with the kids some of our, some of our worst moments. Amanda asked a great dinnertime question. What were some of the most wor you know, worst moments? And, and we were both recounting these moments where we just, we did dumb things. And it cost people that we cared about. And some of them like cost people monetarily, like lots of money. Some of this dumb stuff that we did. And we both, as the kids were listening to us, we, one of the things we said, we were like, and you know what? We're like, every, when this happened, what I can remember so clear as day is I just, I didn't want anyone to know. Just this impulse in me was hide it, don't tell anyone. It just was so instinctual to want to do that. And by the grace of God, both of us were able to say, but we knew we, knew we had the, I mean, I think probably we knew we were going to be found out anyway which was God's grace to us because maybe we would have, we're not so great that we would have been really great about bringing it forward. But we, I think we knew we were gonna be found out anyway, so we were like, hey, I did this and it's just excruciating to admit it. I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And I'm talking about, you know, and you kind of do the, well, you know, I'll try to pay you back for all the money that I caught. And, and every time, you know what we were able to say to our kids? These were other believers and they just said to us, grace, it's forgiven. The debt's paid. Do you know what that did to us? It made us free. We're not, we weren't scared anymore because we've been met with grace. 
and restored when we were wrong. So I just, I say that to say, I know that if you're hiding something right now, I know how scary that is. All of us know how, do we all know how scary that is? Yes, you, people are gonna think less of me, I can't admit it. it I'm just telling you, you're, that line of thinking is trash. It just takes you right into isolation and, and imprisonment. I'm talking about spiritual imprisonment. But there's freedom the other way. It's, it's hard to convince yourself, but I promise you, and we will be, and friends, you and I have to create the kind of church where when people bring forward their sin, they are brought to restoration and given grace because we are gentle. All right, so that's, that's our text for today. A simple command with a reason for it, a thing we need in order to be able to do it, humility, and then an example of it. Restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. My prayer is live this out. Bear one another's burdens and watch the freedom that spreads among us and the joy and the, just the, the God-honoring place that we continue to grow into being as we live this out. All right, let's pray together and then we'll continue in song to close out our worship service. Lord, we love you. We love your word. As Ken reminded us, it does not return void and it will not. And so I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would apply your word to us and we just... Yeah, let, let us yield to it, not resist it in any way. We're, we're prone to want to do that with hard stuff. Thank you for giving us a simple command because we're just not, you know, we're not quick on the uptake here a lot of times. And so, Lord, help me, help us, help all of us really hear this very simple, sweet, life-giving command to bear one of those burdens. May it mark us as a church family in increasing measure in the days ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.